0: Well, hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast, where we talk about what it's like to be a bike mechanic in the shop and on the road. So last week we talked a little bit about stage race transfers. One of my favorite and least favorite things, but I have some tips that I'd like to share that um, I got from a few fellow mechanics, um, tips on how to survive a stage race transfers. Um, so... The first one is kind of one that I came up with. This was my tip. Um, Be the first one up. Um, This is good for most race days, even if it's not a transfer day, Uh, being up early and getting getting to work early, getting those bikes ready, loaded up, tires pumped up, whatever you might need to do, allows you some time for any emergencies that might come up at the last minute. And sometimes there will be, sometimes there won't. And if there's not, then you can just relax um, and be ready for the day. And, you know, as kind of a side note on that, there's nothing better that a rider or a racer can see than a mechanic or a team of mechanics, uh, their mechanics um, being ready early and being, being relaxed, um, especially on a race day. The last thing they need to see is to is to have you running around like like you overslept and getting things ready at the last minute right before you go. It just uh, adds to the anxiety and um, any other kind of thoughts of the race day they might have that are kind of kind of, you know, eating at them a little bit. So uh, be the first one up. Um, The next one uh, is have a plan. Um, Who's driving what? which vehicle, who's driving the transfer truck, who's going in the caravan, best not to leave that till the last minute. Um, Sometimes there's mechanics who prefer one over the other. Uh, Myself, uh, I would probably most of the time choose to be in the caravan. Uh, Just uh, to me, it's a bit more fun driving the truck on a transfer day. It's okay. It's kind of boring. Um, You kind of miss the race, but But, you know, everybody's got their own thing. Some people like to drive the truck and get the truck set up or the, you know, or the extra vehicle or whatever it is you're doing on your transfer day. So there's that. Um, uh, Do what you can the night before um, to be ready to get up and go early. Don't leave anything till the next day. Um, Don't leave. If you had one more thing you needed to do on a bike, just do it. Don't don't wait um, to do it uh, in the morning. Uh, eat something. Uh, that's a pretty important one. Drink your coffee, eat something, uh, but don't don't hang out too much. Don't don't just eat and go and get get to work. But um, you know, time your coffee uh, and your your beverages in the morning so you have time to to go to the bathroom before you get in the caravan car. Um, so there's that, and then um, I have a couple of pit uh, uh, tips from my. My friend and coworker for a few years, uh, Dave Pitts, and and uh, I kind of asked Dave, you know, what were some of his uh, his uh, tips uh, to survive these kind of transfers and stuff? And he had a really good one. One of them was um, always have a paper map uh, and know how to read it. This is kind of a lost art in our world today. Everyone's got a cell phone. Everyone's got navigation and GPS, and we kind of learned to rely on it, um, maybe a little bit too much. So a few years ago, uh, my, my family and I went to Costa Rica, and uh, we were there for about a week. We were uh, in Manuel Antonio um, on the coast there, and uh, we had gotten a cell phone for navigation from the, uh, the rental agency. And for some reason, the day that we were going to leave, uh, the, the phone kind of crapped out. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't um, show the navigation to get us from Manuel Antonio back to the airport. So thankfully, we had a, a, a map, and, and my wife uh, knew how to read it. Uh, when she was younger, uh, she traveled a lot, and she traveled in Europe, and she was, she was always the map reader. Um, for her mostly for her grandmother when they would do trips Um, and it really kind of saved us just being able to read that map and getting us to the airport without navigation in today's uh, day and age is is a skill that that should never be lost Um, so that's a pretty important one and then uh, the last tip from from Dave Pitts and this one I agree with this is one of the most important things is to have music um, music of some kind, whatever you listen to and something to play it on, uh, it will, uh, help the day go by a little bit better. So, so those are kind of our, uh, stage race transfer and transfer day tips. Um, so if you have anything you want to add to that, you can always, uh, email the bicycle mechanics podcast at gmail.com and, uh, we'll get your, uh, comments on the next show or the show after that. So, um, so we're going to move on now to um, we're going to uh, do part three of uh, of the Shimano story. So when we left off last time in part two of uh, the story of Shimano, they had uh, began to use caravan teams um, to go around to visit uh, all the approximately six thousand uh, bicycle dealers in the U.S. Um, Shimano America Corporation. So Each caravan team uh, was composed of two members um, traveling across the US um, on a rotating basis for uh, periods of about six months at a time. Um, So their job was not to sell products, but to provide uh, after-sale service, um, deal with complaints, uh, introduce uh, products, give hands-on help repairing Shimano products, uh, and to collect information. They'd, they'd load up a station wagon with uh, various items such as uh, newly introduced products, various components, as well as uh, repair and service tools. Uh, when they'd arrive in a town, they would uh, consult the telephone directory. Again, no cell phones here, um, no internet. So they would consult the, the telephone directory, directory and visit uh, all the dealers that were listed in that directory. Um, during these visits uh, the caravan teams uh, learned so much uh, they looked they looked closely at components that had been broken and uh, discovered some uh, were failed and had failed in ways that they hadn't expected they they also uh, learned what consumers wanted and how important color and design were as well as uh, how consumers uh, used bicycles and and what they wanted uh, these tips were described as uh, tough and should be described as uh these trips were uh tough and could be described as as adventures uh as much as anything else um they put close to uh six 60,000 uh, kilometers um on these wagons that they had uh by the end of the the trips uh they were unusable when they were returned um Every, uh, every day, the caravan teams would, would send uh, activity reports back to uh, Shimano America Corp- Corporation uh, office in New York. After three years, uh, the caravan teams had visited almost all 6,000 bicycle retailers in the U.S. Boy, imagine that. Uh, many of the caravan team members became executive officers later in their Shimano careers. Uh, the caravan efforts uh, led to increased sales of Shimano products. Years and even decades after Shimano had, uh, Shimano team members would meet the managers they'd visited on the caravan tours, and this would often lead to new business opportunities. So, so through these caravan teams, Shimano had obtained a huge amount of information about the U.S. bicycle industry. They were now able to identify trends in the market, in the U.S. market, in real time. Their products, as well as the ability to collect accurate market information, was very appreciated. Often, uh, when visiting customers, the managers would ask them to go out for a meal and have a drink with them. So in the early 1970s, the demand for lighter bicycles for adults had taken hold. There was a shift from uh, internal shifting to external. And so uh, basically from a three-speed internal gear hub to 10-speed derailleurs while 10-speed derailleurs were originally developed in Europe for uh, racing bicycles uh, and eventually became widespread among non-racers as well uh, who wanted to ride faster. This was a huge shift uh, in how we viewed bicycles, not just for kids now. The idea of riding a fast, lightweight machine had taken hold in the US. This is when Shimano really begins to get uh, good footing in the US market. Uh, Through the caravan team, Shimano had uh, confirmation of a trend towards 10-speed bicycles. Uh, European manufacturers did not have this insight. Uh, Yoshizo informed Shimano headquarters in Japan of the need to ramp up production on 10-speed products uh, for both the U.S. and European market, which was uh, Shimano's next target. 10-speed derailleur sales rose dramatically. Uh, this, be, this, this boom peaked in about 1972-73. Uh, production couldn't keep pace with demand when manufacturers were asked when they'd like uh, the promised delivery date set uh, to they would answer yesterday. Uh, production activities in Japan and sales activities in the U.S. were conducted around the clock. Shimano even uh, chartered a cargo plane once uh, to bring, bring uh, products to the U.S., And uh, European bicycle parts manufacturers could not respond to the US market the way Shimano could. Uh, Shimano sales doubled and then tripled, reaching 60% of overall Shimano bicycle-related sales. Um, In the US market, uh, confidence in Shimano increased greatly. Uh, Meanwhile back in Japan, land prices began to rise and it became difficult to recruit new employees so it was time to look uh, at constructing shimano's first overseas factory so in 1974 a factory in singapore uh, began operations Uh, just the way this this industry often changes today it changed in 1975 Uh, 10 speed bicycle sales dropped sharply it it is believed that this occurred because of the the oil crisis in the fall of 1973 which worked in, f- in favor of bicycle sales. Um, kind of like when, when gas prices take a sharp upturn today, uh, in bicycle shops, we see an increase in bicycle repair from people looking to save some money on fuel costs. Uh, unfortunately, um, in my experience, this often doesn't stick. And so, so at the time, uh, 10 speed bicycle sales, uh, fell so dramatically that mass uh, merchandisers were left uh, with years worth of complete bicycle stock and had no way out. Not only did uh, manufacturers stop placing orders for parts, uh, they even asked Shimano to buy uh, the products, buy back the products they had purchased. In 1975, Shimano sales dropped sharply. Um, Shimano America Corporation sales were less than half of the previous year. Uh, Shimano overall sales decreased by almost half. Uh, the, the company still managed to make a profit. Um, uh, Yoshizo's uh, older brother was said to say to him, uh, why, did, why didn't you notice such a big change earlier? Don't you have eyes? While, while the 10-speed bicycle uh, boom was over, the world of bicycles in the U.S. continued to change. In the 70s, BMX emerged on the West Coast. Yoshizo knew of BMX, learning about it from his caravan team members. In 1974, Shimano had established a company specializing in uh, repair parts and after-sales service for BMX in uh, Los Angeles. The, the company had three Americans uh, who were major BMX enthusiasts. Uh, they went to watch uh, BMX races almost every day Um, They obtained a lot of uh, useful information on BMX through their uh, widespread network. BMX uh, bikes and parts uh, needed to be durable. Uh, BMX riders began to ask Shimano to develop products that they wanted and uh, placed orders. Shimano was able to do this uh, quickly since they had experience with uh, kids' bikes and they were regarded highly um, as a manufacturer. So, Shimano was able to meet the demand for mass-produced BMX bikes. BMX was the first all American bicycle. Uh, European manufacturers uh, did not think BMX would become a big hit and as a result, they missed out on the boom. So in some numbers I pulled off the internet, uh, in 2017 uh, for Shimano, uh, bicycle versus fishing for Shimano was 80%, 20% uh, respectively. Not sure where it is in today's market uh, five years later, but it's probably fairly similar. Um, So in the late 1960s, Shimano wanted uh, to enter new fields of business. The decision of of what to manufacture was narrowed down to fishing tackle and golf clubs. So in the summer of 1970, Shimano entered the fishing tackle business. They felt that uh, their know-how when it came to making bicycle parts could also be applied to fishing reels. So staff visited various uh, fishing spots around Japan to research what, what anglers wanted. Uh, some of the, the staff stayed on board um, fishing boats for over a month. Um, in 1972, Shimano re- released a fish and rod, uh, a fish rod made of uh, polyester resin. Uh, this innovative product gained tremendous popularity among lo- among lovers of ayu fishing. So you might ask, what is iu fishing? So, so iu fishing is defined a couple ways. Uh, iu is a type of fish. Um, it's also known as a sweet fish. Uh, iu fishing is is also one of several, uh, narrowly defined styles of fishing in Japan. So, uh, the samurai practiced uh, iu fishing as long as uh, four hundred and thirty years ago. Um, using long rods. Uh, these rods were said to be seven to 11 meters long, which is uh, 23 to 36 feet long. And I didn't think this was true at first, but I, I did a YouTube search and a, an images search online and and found some videos of people actually fishing with these super long uh, rods, which was pretty amazing. Um, they still use these today, so um, it's pretty wild, but there are there's quite a few videos on uh, YouTube of, of them using these rods. Um, in uh, 1974, Yoshizo uh, was at the Shimano headquarters uh, in Japan and he was uh, asked um, by a co-worker, he said, uh, "'We have some strange uh, American visitors. "'They want to talk uh, with us about fishing tackle, "'but they speak English with a strong accent, "'so I can't understand what they're saying.' Can you come help me? So, of course, Yoshizo, you know, he had lived in the U.S. and he spoke uh, English very well. So that's why they kind of came to him. So it turned out that these Americans uh, were led by uh, Lou uh, Childre, um, a leading uh, figure in bass fishing. Uh, Lou uh, wanted Shimano to make a bait casting reel of the highest quality for bass fishing. So Lou lived in in Alabama uh, and had a small, uh, old airplane uh, by which he took Shimano staff on the project uh, to various fishing spots. Uh, The Shimano staff uh, paid close attention to styles and concepts of bass fishing. Uh, The noise created by uh, rotating reels was taken into consideration to optimize their use without an an annoying noise. Uh, Efforts were made um, to minimize noise uh, produced by the reels. Uh, even with the success of the reel named Bantam, uh, which was copied by uh, by other manufacturers for its streamlined body, um, it took Shimano about 10 years before they could say their fishing tackle business was a success. In so it, it, going back to the bike part of it, uh, in 1973, Shimano released uh, Dura Ace. Uh, when Sh- Yoshizo gazed upon the Dura-Ace Grupo for the first time, he was deeply moved, thinking Dura-Ace permits no compromise. So that's kind of the beginning of Dura-Ace, which is kind of where we'll end the the Shimano story this time, um, and we will pick it up next time uh, on part four, and we will start off with Dura-Ace, and we'll move into kind of the mountain bike realm of Shimano um, next time. So I'd, I'd like to move on to our uh, next and uh, final topic uh, for today. And it's uh, basically titled workspaces. So one of the most important ways to set yourself up for success as a bicycle mechanic is to have an efficient, clean and well-organized workspace. Uh, simply defined, your workspace is where you'll be working on bikes. Um, uh, workspace needs are kind of as follows, not in any particular order: uh, space to work, uh, water hookup, shelter, uh, close to car parking, electricity, uh, bike storage that's safe and secure, and some music. So there's different ways to achieve the main goals and um, that I just listed. And uh, if you're doing the team thing and you're traveling, then the the best way to get all those at once is to get there first uh hence getting up early um have a team truck that kind of helps that offers you quite a bit of that stuff uh, right away Uh, or the other one is to work in a bike shop uh so i have always found uh shop workspaces uh they seem adequate um as far as size most of the time but they often are too messy uh usually can't see the top of the workbench. That's usually kind of a bad sign. Uh, one time when I first started working for uh, REI, uh, I had decided to, before we opened our store in Corte Madera, uh, Northern California, I decided that I would go visit a an REI store that had been around for a long time. It was the, uh, the REI store in Berkeley. So that store... I believe was the second REI in existence uh, or was it the third I don't know it was it was top three for sure so it had been there for a long time and I actually knew one of the the guys that worked there uh, Paul was his name a uh, nice guy so I kind of went to visit this shop and he was working on a bike and I was I was talking to him as he was standing in the we were standing in the back uh, work area and he wanted to he was trying to find a tool and he couldn't find it because the counter was was so cluttered with uh tools and and parts and stuff and it was sitting right in front of him but he couldn't see it i'm sure we've all kind of done that from time to time but that's just kind of kind of not a good thing uh that's one of my pet peeves of working with a lot of people is kind of leaving too many tools out at once and basically end up with a big pile of tools and parts, and then your productivity will kind of drop from there. Uh, one of the, the ways as mechanics we, we really sabotage ourselves is, is working, trying to work in that messy and disorganized space. Um, I, th- I think that this, this state can be taxing uh, on your senses on so many levels. It can't help but hurt your productivity and uh, job satisfaction. A workspace in a shop should have everything you need, such as uh, space to work, the water hookup, maybe. Uh, When I worked at Wheelsmith Bike Shop in Palo Alto, we had a shower that was uh, where you would wash the bikes because we were kind of downstairs in the old, I think it was an old postal building um, in downtown Palo Alto. And we didn't really have anywhere to get outside and have a water hookup. So we had a shower downstairs that was set up with a bike stand in it to wash bikes if uh, we were doing that service for somebody. Um, as well as uh, other things you'd need is shelter, electricity, uh, bike storage, and music, like we talked about. Unlike a a team mechanic, uh, where we have to find these things and find them fairly quickly so we can start working, um, this stuff uh, kind of exists in bike shops. Um, So some of the the best workspaces I've ever had uh, on the road as a team mechanic were kind of uh, as follows. So not in any particular order uh one of my favorites was at the redfish lodge in idaho uh, right on redfish lake uh, with the sawtooth mountains in the background um, that's that was a pretty special work spot uh outside right across from the lake mountains beautiful um another uh another really fun one was uh, a balcony uh, overlooking the mediterranean and sicily uh for world championships um and uh a little funny side story about that we had uh at the time we had our component may uh provider was uh mavic mavic and at the time they were kind of uh had released and we were kind of testing out for them the the zap uh electronic uh rear derailleur which if any of you remember um never really panned out, but it just shows Mavic was, they were kind of ahead of the game on the electronic stuff. Um, anyway, we were working on that balcony and I just remember being so frustrated with these systems that the way the the zap rear derailleur worked was, if any of you remember, um, the indexing was in the derailleur, it wasn't in the shifter. So if you were to pull The derailleur apart pull the spring part of it apart like it was shifting if you had just holding a derailleur in your hand there were little snaps kind of in between that were the um the indexing in that in that derailleur uh, housing that body so i got so frustrated with one that that i grabbed it and i threw it into the ocean from the balcony probably not the best thing i ever did but i was kind of i was kind of peeved and in mid-air as i threw it i could hear it open made that little each opened up and then, it, and then I heard it splash into the water. Um, I remember Dave Pitts with me, was with me at the time and uh, we laughed pretty hard. But um, another story about Mavic Zap, I'll get off topic a little bit here, but um, one year working uh, at the um, Tour de Pont, uh, we were in our box truck next to uh, Greg LeMond's team, uh, the GAN team at the time and they had uh, their mechanic if some people have probably heard of him, Julian DeVries uh, was uh, Greg's mechanic for many years. And, and Julian was older, kind of, uh, eh, by the time I met him, he seemed a little bit grumpy, but um, but we got along okay. And, you know, Julian had, had worked uh, with Eddie Merckx, uh, Greg Lamont, and Lance Armstrong. So he kind of has been around, and he, um, it is said that he may have worked about 50 tours de France as a team mechanic, which is pretty amazing. Um, so he, uh, after, uh, after Colnago uh, left, uh, Ernesto Colnago left the Molteni team to do his own thing, that was when Julian DeVries took over uh, and was Eddie Merckx's mechanic. So that kind of gives you a little bit of uh, an idea of how far back he goes. So I remember at the time, uh, the GAN team was also run, running the Mavic uh, Zap system and, uh, and cause Greg Lamont seemed to uh, use Mavic on a lot of his, uh, bikes, um, over the years. But, uh, I remember asking Julian, I said, uh, I said, I said, what do you think about this stuff? And I kind of pointed to the rear derailleur on the bike he had in the stand and he looked at me, he looked me square in the eye and he said, he said, you know, you have it. <laughs> <laughs> that was all he had to say that he obviously didn't like it either, but. Um, it was, it was pretty funny. So anyway, that's the Mavic zap, uh, side story. Um, so one of my other favorite, uh, uh, work, workspaces as a team mechanic would be, um, uh, a wooded, uh, parking lot that we had across, uh, the street from the race hotel in Philadelphia. Um, it had a high wall between uh, the lot and the street. So we were somewhat concealed from the public, but still close to the hotel. Um. And yes, being concealed from the public is uh, what often sets an excellent workspace apart from a bad one. So before I get into some of the worst workspaces, um, I will tell you a little bit about um, some funny workspaces. So probably one of the funniest uh, workspaces was in the Tour of Malaysia uh, when... um, we were pretty close to the jungle at one hotel uh, there's jungle everywhere there, and apparently um some monkeys had coming down out of the come down out of the jungle and they had stolen a few tools from a few of the mechanics um I didn't see it happen myself, but I heard all the yelling and stuff um pretty funny to have a monkey steal your tools, but um maybe not so funny um but there was that and then um another funny one is that I think that sa- at that same hotel we were all the bikes were, were set to be stored outside at this hotel in Malaysia. They didn't have any room inside. So they, they basically rented a gigantic, uh, tent that was open on the sides, um, so that we could put all the bikes underneath them. We all had, all the teams had all the bikes together and we all had locks. So all the bikes were locked. And I believe there was a guard, um, on the hotel grounds. So it was, it was pretty safe. Um, but, uh, That Later that night, uh, Dave Pitts and I were sitting outside on our balcony, which kind of overlooked where the tent was, and uh, we were having a few beverages, um, as we often did at the end of the workday or late into the evening, and out of nowhere, a gust of wind came and picked up the tent and then slammed it back down. Um, We couldn't believe that we had seen it, and and nobody really believed us. They thought the tent just fell over, but it was a gust of wind, and... uh, The only person that, that is sure of this is Dave, um, and myself, but anyway, moving on to the, um, the worst workspaces, uh, so one of the worst is almost any workspace inside an underground parking garage, uh, done this one quite a few times as a lot of fellow mechanics probably have, um, it's dark, it's often smelly, um, it's often far from the bike storage, uh usually uh and the other thing is it's got major roof rack danger we could do a whole show on roof rack danger but we won't do it today but you get the idea um uh sometimes it's the only option but it's uh, somewhat depressing on a lot of levels um yeah, yeah another one is um, another b- bad workspace is anytime you have to set up on a busy street especially uh, in a bad part of town um so in, in Philly uh, one year, uh, teams had to set up work right on the street in the parking spaces right next to the hotel. I remember the, the Motorola team was there, and they had, uh, they had a few bikes stolen in broad daylight while the mechanics were working. Um, along those same lines, uh, once in, uh, I think it was Palermo, Sicily, uh, my friend Dave Pitts, uh, who stayed behind to work the uh, time trial after the road races were done, I think I had headed home by then, and he had to stay and, uh, go down to, uh, Palermo where the, the individual time trial was going to happen for worlds. Um, and, uh, he was working on the bikes outside. It was bike wash time. And, uh, as he was kind of getting set up, a kid just grabbed a front wheel, uh, from the TT bike, um, didn't take it off the bike. It was sitting next to it and just started kind of walking away with it. Um, Dave stopped him and, uh, and declared it was uh, an inside the hotel wipe down day, not an outside work day, Uh, smartly so. Uh, Another crappy workspace is inside your hotel room. Uh, This is uh, usually is the the case when weather is really bad or you just don't have access to a safe uh, outside workspace. Um, uh, Lots of stories about washing bikes in a shower or a bathtub, kind of gross. I never did this because I opted for a good bike wipe down versus uh, messing up the shower. Uh, you can make it work, but it will probably involve some furniture moving, uh, mainly the bed. So when we talk about uh, race mechanics, workspaces versus shop uh, mechanics, it's, it's tough to say who has uh, the better gig since it can really vary greatly on both sides. Um, some, some shops really like uh, for the customers to be able to see the mechanics uh, working up close and personal uh, as a mechanic, I do not like this, uh, unless I'm teaching, uh, a class, I prefer to be left alone, uh, while I work. Um, I am indeed somewhat antisocial, like many of my fellow mechanics. I've, I've also had fellow, uh, mechanics who become very annoyed, uh, when anyone watches them work, um. And a little funny story. Have a, a little funny story here. I have a friend of mine, uh, Doug Hatfield, who worked uh, with the GT uh, mountain bike team and a few other uh, mountain bike teams, I believe. And currently is with Santa Cruz. Uh, once told me a, a story about the World Cup circuit. Uh, they would put up barriers to keep the public out of their workspace. If you've been to one of these events, um, you know that it's kind of uh, it's it's a huge deal. All these big trailers and uh, they have kind of fence off their work areas for, for the team so they can get their work done and not be uh, bothered too much. But he, he said that uh, sometimes uh, people crash the gate and uh, would, they would come right up to him while he was working on a bike and ask him for stickers. Uh, Pretty funny, but they tried to keep the gates closed, but sometimes that would happen. Um, And uh, you know, one of, one of my favorite uh, shop workspaces that I've ever had was in uh, Half Moon Bay, California at the the first shop that I worked at uh, when I was, uh, I believe, 19 or 20, um, it, was, uh, it was in a, a building that, that used to be a pharmacy. So uh, the workshop was three steps up um, behind the counter and, and had a glass barrier all around it except for where the opening was, where the, the stairs were that went up into it. Uh, we had a great view of the sales floor and uh, customers couldn't watch us uh, work unless we invited them into the work area. Uh, which we rarely did of course. Um, <laughs> so that's our podcast for this week or this two week period. I'd like to thank you for listening and don't forget if you have any questions, comments, concerns or grievances, don't hesitate to email us at the bicycle podcast at email.com and check us out on Instagram, the bicycle mechanics podcast on Instagram, and until then, have a great day.